This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Josh Ensminger, Senior Fellow at Ecole de Pont Business School. I'm particularly focused on the governance of technology and the politics of technology. My background is more heavily on government and policy, and I'm moving into the commercialization and understanding of what makes an AI company successful, what are the trends that are driving the viability of competitive advantages in the AI industry. It's becoming increasingly hard for me to distinguish what's a technology company and what's not a technology company. The biggest issue I see is something that I'm calling competitive democratization. And this is a drive from some of the big companies to open up access for AI solutions through AI as a service. The thing that worries me is that the means of accessing these technologies is increasingly being controlled, I suppose, or dominated by a few cloud service providers. This is Josh. He's an applied researcher in international affairs and the fourth industrial revolution. He serves as a fellow at the Public Tech Lab at EA School of Global and Public Affairs, where he's working on the next generation of public services. He also recently served as a research contributor to the Future of Production Initiative at the World Economic Forum. His work as a senior fellow for Ecole DuPont Business School connects him to the Center for Policy and Competitiveness, a think tank affiliated to the microeconomics of competitive network of Professor Michael E. Porter at Harvard Business School. His work there focuses on the shifting nature of competitive advantage in a world where AI and other fourth industrial revolution technologies make their inroads. And this triggered me, hence I invited George to my podcast. We discuss how these technologies rapidly erode the position of advantage that many companies used to have. We also discuss how AI is becoming a platform race and how having access to the right data rather than the right algorithms is becoming a critical factor to create a position of advantage. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, the defensible differentiation is growing with your ability to create data dominance around a particular area. Secondly, why the battle of business software will be won by those that will master scale over scope. And thirdly, that the opportunity is exponential for those software companies that can anticipate how we will restructure our understanding of what is a firm, what is a career, and what is a job. So Josh, thank you for being on my podcast. It's, uh, thank you for having me. We've met each other about a year ago, and I've been following you since. And I like the, like the conversation we're going to have today on the, on the podcast. But before we start, can you introduce yourself 
to the audience, explain what you're doing, what your passions are? Sure. I'm a fellow at Nexus Frontier Tech, an AI studio based out of London, Hanoi, and Tokyo, working on the democratization of AI with a particular emphasis on natural language processing. I'm a senior fellow at Ecole de Pont Business School in Paris as well, working on some of the same topics, in particular, applying tech for improved social impact and social good. And I'm currently based out of Madrid, but I, and I do quite a bit of work with the Instituto de Empresa, i.e. business school, on public technology and government technology. Right now, I'm actually writing a piece on designing and building regulatory sandboxes. Okay. Yeah. From that, I guess it might be kind of a clear shot into what are my interests. I'm particularly focused on the governance of technology and the politics of technology. My background is more heavily on government and policy. And I'm moving into the commercialization and understanding of what makes an AI company successful. What are the trends that are driving the viability of competitive advantages in the AI industry? That's an interesting one. That's dear to my heart, by the way. Yeah. What makes an AI company or what makes a business software company in general successful? But these days, there's an enormous move, of course, around companies that are in the AI space mm. or companies that are transitioning to the AI space if, they, if they've been a traditional company in the past. Yeah. So what do you see? What, are, what is the trend that you see? The first is it's becoming increasingly hard for me to distinguish what's a technology company and what's not a technology company. The, the classic industry boundaries of, of sectors or even just among firms is somewhat collapsing in the collective need to use data to drive business intelligence and drive this intelligence to, to create what would otherwise be considered a competitive advantage. Yeah. But for me, the biggest issue I see is something that I'm calling competitive democratization. And this is a drive from some of the big companies to open up access for AI solutions through AI as a service. And you can see this in, in calls from Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai for the democratization of AI. But where this is really seen is in big acquisitions, the acquisition of Kaggle, the acquisition of GitHub, the acquisition of Wise.io, the control of the, the funding round of Algorithmia, on and on. Interesting. So how do you believe this is now, is, this is changing? And, I mean, and why is this necessary that uh, AI becomes available as a service? Is there a bigger problem behind it? I suppose this goes back to my understanding of competitive advantage. And it's not necessarily, you know, cost or any other thing. It's the total understanding of a firm of what's relevant to the value chain. With new capabilities for automating new small tasks, the question is increasingly what is relevant to competitive advantage in an age of automation or an age of micro task automation. And this leads to who has access and the capability to use Things like natural language processing or image recognition to automate things like, you know, the chatbot that allows for improved customer service, which might be significantly small, but still an overall improvement to the firm. True. These things for me lead precisely to who has, who has access. The firms that don't have access are going to be left behind in a sense and, and the ability to more effectively integrate data, the ability to better respond to customers, the ability to better understand where their future customers are, what their future customer demands are. Yeah. And the firms that can have better access to these technologies are the firms that I believe are going to at least have a better chance of succeeding. The thing that worries me is that the means of accessing these technologies is increasingly being controlled, I suppose or dominated by a few cloud service providers. 
I see, I see. And that's, uh, that, that's the, the number of companies that you've just been mentioning. Has it, I mean, I mean you can, I think, distinguish two levels here. I mean, mm-hmm. on the one hand side, it's like the end user, the, the organizations that are using this as a competitive advantage for their company. But of course, there's a layer on top of that that's actually the vendor layer. At the end, I think everybody is going to be yeah, screaming for for the right people that have that that can actually help build those type of solutions. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I saw a statistic uh, somewhere that that's, that talks about there is only ten thousand programmers in the world that have the expertise to to develop advanced AI algorithms. So ten thousand people. Admittedly, there's there's a there's a few studies, and all of them have competing opinions. Some say there's only like 200 PhDs of relevant quality that are produced every year. Some say there's you know 10,000, 20,000, 22,000. There was one report, I think, from Tencent that was in the hundreds of thousands of potentially viable. But either way, there is a significantly reduced number than is there's more that's demanded than is supplied. A lot of the you know incredibly proficient AI researchers are now getting paid salaries between you know, 345K to 1.2 million. And it's unsurprising to, to see that. And democratization has definitely been kind of in response to this or this increasing demand for democratization. Small firms simply can't pay for these kinds of researchers unless they have a very niche data set or a very niche kind of mission. Otherwise, they, they need alternative access. Yeah. And if you can train you know, a system through Amazon Web Services or Google's Cloud ML or, or IBM for significantly less, most are going to take that option. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. There's, that's, that's where these platforms starts to arise. I agree with that as well. Yep. So you were talking, I think, prior to, the, to be starting the, the, the podcast about, you know, the, the whole pattern of invention of a technology, then, then the access to it, and then the cost of the access. So what do you see changing there? I, from my perspective, I sure. believe that this this flow is getting faster and faster and faster. Yeah, yeah. So conventionally, democratization has three parts. There's the cost of access. There's the format of access. For instance, like, do you need to be physically close to you know a given piece of technology, or do you have to have you know digital means, etc.? And then there's the expertise to be able to use that technology effectively. And the hope is that over time there's going to be improvements along these three areas. Yeah. In, the, in the AI field, however, there's been improvements to access to cost. There's been improvements of access to you know, the format through cloud services. And there's been improvements of access, in some sense, to the know-how. The issue is that the means by which all of these things are reduced in cost is through large firms. In short, AI has become a platform race. AI has become more along the lines of an app battle than any other kind of a general competitive structure. What do you, what do you really see that? And, and what is the significance of that? The significance of that is, I mean, going back kind of to, to standards, is the ability to control scope or scale. Yeah. Classically, you know, AI startups, they, they need to have, you know, the talent, they need to have the right data, they need to have, you know, the algorithm, the technology, and they need to have a distinct view to solving the unique problem relevant to their chosen area. So within with an app battle, you get the ability to consolidate some of these efforts in a single area, in a single platform. You, you get the ability to offer the kind of scope to businesses 
and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The the perspective here is that the reason why Apple is so dominant isn't isn't necessarily because of you know a lot of different factors in terms of developers. It's because iOS was the best platform to be able to reach Apple customers. True. The platform race is is simply that where's going to be the best area for developers to go if they want to leverage a given a reduced overhead or reduced cost of access to be able to produce these niche solutions to be able to you know, advance their own interests. And from my perspective, you, there's a lot of elements that go into this. And among those elements, you know, there's access to the data sets, access to the, to the knowledge, access to the algorithms, access to the computing power and access to the, you know, physical means for, for promoting that computation. The only companies that can effectively leverage this right now, at least from my perspective, is essentially AT&T, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft, at least in terms of how they open it up to, to end users. Even, even companies that are trying to promote something parallel by trying to say, we understand that this is the, the structure, this is where things are going, and companies need you know, open source means of accessing these products that's not going through these firms like FastAI. FastAI's demonstrations of you know, what they can do are still run through Amazon Web Services. They don't have the computational power to offer to firms that are going sure. to come to them, or at least not in scale. Yeah, but isn't that again that, that these are two different things? You know, there's on the one hand side there's the the application side, the AI side, and then the mm-hmm. other end is it's it's the computational side, like the the hardware, the power. Of I mean, course, sure. these things go really, really hand in hand. But for the most part, when you initially train an algorithm, that's when you need the computational power. Afterwards, there's there's a reduced need for accessing the same kind of computational capacity. But that's where the issue comes in. Who has the ability to train the initial versions of these algorithms and continue to have improved maintenance? Which goes into, I mean, the issue of creating an AI strategy at all. It can't be a one-off thing. It has to be a continuous data management strategy. Otherwise, most likely you're going to run into a series of issues, not the least of which being just an incoherence in what everyone in the firm understands or attempts to leverage that AI solution to do. I agree. So, do you, so you believe that over time, and I mean, the question is at the end, like, what is the, the definition of over time? Mm-hmm. There will be, I mean, individual software companies will not invest anymore in creating their own algorithms, but they will pick something from one of the bigger vendors to, to start with. Most likely, and admittedly, this is something that is already being seen. One of the areas that firms still have the advantage is less in being able to produce the algorithm itself than to be able to have the niche labeled data set. Because in the end, at least for the time being, the data economics of AI supports the idea that if you want to have a survivable startup, you need to have niche access to a data set that either someone else doesn't have access to that's willing to use it or that uh-huh. someone else can't simply replicate to the same degree of granularity or efficacy as you. Let me make a small interruption here. Josh just made an excellent remark about how the means of competitive differentiation for software companies has shifted. And he'll share even more insights like this in the remainder of this interview. That said, it's very well possible that this shift is actually happening to you today. So if you want to get some fresh guidance about what you can do product strategy-wise to ensure that your software business remains both remarkable and impactful, just drop me a note at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. But that again, that is very much related to like, like where do you plug into? I mean, I've had various interviews on my podcast with vendors, for example, I mean, Gravity, that's a vendor that is playing in the uh, 
the fundraising world and they just plug into CRM systems. So they mm -hmm. plug into the Microsoft CRM or they plug into Salesforce. That's mm -hmm. their data set. But there are other vendors that are you know, doing something similar in another area, for example, in, in predicting project outcomes or pr predicting project insecurities who plug into kind of data sources like Microsoft Project or Jira. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, the data set is often connected to yeah, the applications that a customer is already running. And of course, that's only a fraction of it, but a lot of it is in, in that area. Mm. So do you see that as well? I mean, how do you see that they're changing over time? I mean, are you speaking more in terms of just access? Yeah. Is, is, is that something yeah. that, that um, will change? Ideally. Admittedly, if you're going to have an effective democratization of technology, this goes into who has the means to be able to effectively use it, the expertise, and in this sense, any effective expertise has to be connected to the right data. Bad data and dirty data is going to be one of the biggest issues that, and is still one of the biggest issues facing data scientists and, and the generation of effective solutions. In terms of overall access, this is something that's still being debated. There's quite a bit of open data sets that are being released by you know, Google's you know, YouTube data set that was released, I think it was like 7 million. But the suspicion is... Any open source data set that's released by a big company has been released under the assumption that it's not anything that someone else can use to create a competitive advantage in an area that they want to make, to retain an advantage. Uh -huh. Otherwise, they're going to have to pay for it, and often they have to pay dearly. I mean, there was the purchase of the weather company for around $2 billion by IBM, and from my perspective, this wasn't a purchase that was for anything other than the ability to have a mass and continuous flow of data on existing weather patterns and to be able to use this to drive, for instance, improved optimization in, in manufacturing for, for demand perception or sure. any yeah. other kind of, you know, any other kind of such issues. And, you know, Google's acquisition of Waze was somewhat of the same thing. Access is going to be, it's going to be potentially the defining struggle. Yeah, exactly. So if, if, if that level of, of access is going to be democratized, that means that, I mean, typically software vendors have to find a different means of yeah, finding their, their key level of differentiation. So what do you see there changing there? Well, this is something that admittedly I'm still debating. Yeah. In terms of you know, personal belief on the demand and the social benefit of democratization, I'm not sure if that should be a competitive advantage. I'm not sure if the kind of services that are that are leveraged, at least under some kinds of, of data set access, should be considered as things that are specific to, to any one firm. For instance, in, in healthcare, if you want to promote competitiveness in a given market, I don't believe that it would be a truly competitive practice to restrict access to the kind of granular data sets that can improve quality of life as, as the means for securing that, that advantage. I believe that should be something that is a little bit more open access in the sense of if a firm is going to expand the market to be able to improve quality of life through, you know, niche of personalized healthcare services, I think, <laughs> I think they should do it. I think they should be able to do it. I think they should be able to do it at a reduced barrier to entry because the other issue that comes from the, the control of these data sets otherwise is the ability to consolidate essentially a market oligopoly. Yeah. That worries me. <laughs> and that's so maybe, something you're going to be investigating here. 
so maybe the differentiation doesn't come from the data access or the data owning the data, but it's more the solution that is created with it. Ideally, I mean that would be the the, the conventional understanding of competitive advantage. It's yeah. not any one thing; it's, it's the whole package. And I would hope that, or at least from the government side, that there will be an understanding of competitive advantage in some of these areas should come from the nature of the total solution that's applied, rather than access to any one data source that allows them kind of a niche advantage. But again, this is going to depend quite heavily on sector. I gave the example of healthcare because I personally believe that I have debated and still unresolved opinions on the nature of where privatization or where private services should belong in terms of healthcare provision, particularly in in cases that might decide or impact life or death scenarios. But in other cases such as like niche agriculture or niche manufacturing, I think it's perfectly fine to have kind of restricted data sets. Why is that? Because I don't believe there's as much at stake. Okay, yeah, yeah. So some of these data sets need, need to be made public in order to, to do the, well, to create a, well, to impact life quality, for example, in, in, well, with regards to health and so on. And that's what I see as a big problem as well. That's not so much the, the creativity of the, or the technology that's not available. It's more having access to the data itself because it's privatized, because it's completely... Yeah, it's, it's it's not a public thing at all. That's, of course, very much related to data that, that is about our health or our yeah, private situations. Yeah, and this is why it's quite possible that if there's going to be a democratization strategy that actually counts as real democratization rather than just the, the consolidation of you know market advantage through the platform race, there needs to be a government-led effort to improve means of access to yeah. these kinds of niche data sets. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Because with that, then creativity, you can really go go wild and we can create fantastic solutions. That's the and idea. A of, yeah. A number of the podcast interviews that I did were typically yeah, handcuffed because of that, that's, that level of, of, of non-access because it was so fac- fragmented across the world. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, let me see. Competitive democratization, it's going to change the nature of competitive advantage for all business. What do you see happening shortly? So what is most prominent? And, and what, for example, that's, that's what I want to lead to. What can co- software companies start doing right now in order to, to prevent a situation where they want to be? I think this is part of the issue. I'm not sure there's much they can do. Okay. I mean, if we... If we accept some of the, the oncoming trends for like the next three to five years, then with the cheap access to algorithms through some of these means and the, the cheap ability to you know, create minimal solutions rather than customized niche effective solutions, we're going to see intelligence popping up in more and more products. In some sense, if you can derive value from a product, then at some stage in the cycle of, of access or use, intelligence can be applied to improve that value. With this, that's where I see some of these issues emerging. There's you know, this massive demand for the implementation of intelligence and there's new cheap means of accessing that means of intelligence. And for me, this is, this is exactly that. It's, it's consolidating a lead that I find hard, if not potentially impossible in the near future for any additional firm to come in and disrupt. Uh-huh. In some sense, the nature of disruption in the AI industry is going to be fundamentally different than, than in previous, previous technologies or previous industries by nature of the kind of innovation and the nature of intelligent innovation. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's two camps. There's the, the, the vendors that start out with new ideas, starting intelligent, well, AI first. And mm-hmm. then, of course, 
an enormous amount of vendors in the marketplace that haven't that are maybe not even thinking about adding AI to their product because they think it's like it's it's a hype first. <laughs> That's yeah. what I also hear a lot. But once there's there's a lot of truth to that. Admittedly, a lot of these you know quote unquote intelligent solutions is essentially you know like a little dash of statistics or an if then problem that they've essentially just called artificial intelligence for for probably more than half the conversations that I've had with with startups or with founders when they artificial intelligence is the new organic in terms yeah. of a label for most of the time it's it's quite meaningless that doesn't mean there isn't potential value or potential meaning and with you know ease of access comes new probability that we're going to have more and far more developed creative solutions that are going to be applied to these problems where classically people have been applying minor solutions i suppose yeah program solutions hard coded where they think they know all the rules yeah exactly and if, and then then of course you end up in all kind of problems i had a very interesting discussion around like preventing fraud and the way we've mm. always been doing it is by setting on creating rules because of the things we see but then you only find things that are actually connected to what you have put in the system as a rule yeah and as a consequence you miss it seems that you've missed 15 times that the value that is not being recognized yeah and this is where unsupervised machine learning comes in the ability to identify correlations that might not otherwise be considered as relevant to fraud, but are direct signs of fraud given past behavior and users' exactly. you know, purchase history. And these are the, these are the, exactly the, the the type of capabilities that will be democratized. Correct. I believe so. That's what you see happening with the acquisitions that you mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. That there are companies that that are building these huge platforms and will take will take the lead there. Yeah, because. My ultimate perspective is this is a battle for scale. And yeah. the large companies have realized they don't need to focus on scope because they can allow developers to focus on scope insofar as the diversity of applications and, and niche solutions, et cetera, et cetera, as long as they use their platform to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And so by expanding the means for, for scope, by allowing, you know, right, leveraging themselves as a platform, they're essentially consolidating scale and they're consolidating market share. True. But isn't this something that is repeating itself all the time? Because, I mean, if oh, you yeah. look at, for example, the, the platforms that we were used to in the 90s, you know, we were, as a, as a business software vendor, you were, you were leaving a number of the functions that you were building to the platform. Like, like how do you print? Mm-hmm. How do you save? You know, that kind of stuff. It was like Windows was the platform. Then the internet became the platform. And now you get a, another level of flat platforms on top of that. And yeah. so at, at, the end, at the end, I think that's also a good thing that is, that is happening. It can be, but this goes into the question of, I mean, we can connect it back to automation. In some sense, leaving you know, printing services to the platform is one thing. The ability to automate an entire accounting department is another. True. What's at stake in AI is the latter. It's, yeah. as, as with the first, when you have a new technology, you get to redefine what's a relevant task, what's redundant. You don't need to have a go... You can buy a printer and use the printer you know, in your offices rather than going to a printing shop. Now it's, you can automate cognitive and intelligent tasks rather than outsourcing or hiring on a new person. That's this, true. Me, this is, but, but I think there's also something good around that because, I mean, what we have, oh, sure. what we have seen in the, you know, over, the, well, over the last decades and people are, are complaining or maybe threatened by, by the, the noise in the market that AI is going to take our jobs yeah, but to a big extent, the, the fact that we are doing certain things over and over and over again doesn't mean we, you know, we were made to do it. It's just yep. that there wasn't a, a proper solution for it, and hence we had to do it. Yep. So I think 
that's one aspect of it that it allows us to start doing things that we've sort of neglected or or have always parked. I mean, there's I mean, I've done a number of keynotes whereby the topic was that, for example, CFOs can now finally start to 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 spend time on on strategic tasks rather than compliancy. And this yeah. has been a discussion that has been going on for decades now. And for some reason, it has never happened. Another thing I see as well is that the population is is aging. Mm-hmm. So more people stay in the in the well, not in the workplace, but stay alive, and as a consequence, have to be fed. Mm-hmm. There's less people being born. So and in the meantime, the the working population is shrinking. So mm-hmm. with less capacity in the workplace, we have to kind of maintain or or ensure that a larger population stays alive. So mm-hmm. there there has to be something that that has to be done differently in order to to make that happen. That productivity has to shift massively yes so yeah and, and therefore i mean the, there's things that automation will need to do fast and it needs to be the, the, the level of access that that people have to it needs to become less costly and, and more democratized yep but that also it enables to kind of step up as an industry as, in, as a whole yeah i mean admittedly this could be the subject of a whole other discussion because you get you know issues over inequality because with automation you essentially you're saying there's going to be you know return on investment to capital rather than return on investment to you know labor that you put into a given task yeah. and so whoever's the dominant capital holders today are most likely going to have their positions accelerated and you know their wealth exponentially increased mm-hmm. but in terms of you know overall you know Age-driven issues. There's a paper by Darren Moglu at MIT on on precisely this, where novel technologies might be able to improve the overall productivity of generations that are continuing to work past what would otherwise be considered retirement age. And this can definitely be a boon to places like Japan or EU, where there's you know wide differences in in birth rates and you know wide or emerging imbalanced population pyramids in terms of old and young. But in places like, you know, the African continent or China or India, this would be a staggeringly different conversation. And it has to be a staggeringly different conversation when it's dominated by people, you know, with the average age between 18 and 32. And again, this, this for me is one of the ultimate questions is how do you, how do you convince countries to consider the future of work to be a shared problem? Because ultimately, this is a shared problem. There's no such thing as a national AI strategy, there's only <laughs> there's only strategies that are insufficiently global in their scope. If you deal with another nation and you're dealing with trade and you're dealing with the question of how you engage with one another economically, you're dealing with the question of how do you leverage data and how do you therefore how do you leverage AI, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, it goes on and on and on. But suffice to say, how to manage automation is it is the question that's going to be defining the next generation of political leaders. And unfortunately, I sincerely believe that how democratization is being pursued or resolved now is going to fundamentally impact their ability to effectively respond to that question. Yeah, exactly. And also the, the, the urge of doing it faster than, uh, than rather than later. <laughs> yep. Sense of urgency is increasing day by day. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot behind that, but I'm not sure if it's as much as it's hyped to be. For instance, there was a McKinsey report that was something along the lines of 380 some million people are, can have their jobs automated in in the next little bit. All of this goes back to a 2014 paper out of the Oxford Martin School on the computerizability of a given task, which ended up with something along the lines of, depending on interpretation, somewhere between 45 and 54% of 
of jobs or tasks can be automated with the level of productivity of, of technologies at that year, which that's is, true. yeah, I mean, yeah, in some sense, it's terrifying until you, until you try to approach it from the sense of, well, automation isn't really replacing jobs, it's replacing tasks. And so the burden is on companies to restructure their understanding of what is a firm, what is, what is a career, what is a job. Yeah. And I mean, this is a collective burden on all of us. I think it's a positive burden, though. I think so, too. I think so, too. Even going back to the CFO, like there's something like 30% of the average CFO's time is, you know, data and analytics. If you can automate that, you're essentially freeing up increased time for strategic decisions that I think that's positive, assuming that it's applied right, though. And that's, you know, that's the new strategic burden. That's always the case. Yeah. The question is at the end, like if you free up that time, what are you going to do with it? And what could you do with it? around things that you've never done before. I mean, yep. is, it, is it simply the things that have always been well, neglected or is it something radically new? And I think that is going to change, uh, be another aspect of what defines competitive advantage. The ones that being, can be most clever and, and creative around that part. Yeah, that is, on that we are in total agreement. Exactly. So in respect of time, I mean, mm. what, I mean, you've been, Looking into this topic way, way beyond that I've been doing it, what advice would you give a business software CEO? What is the single advice or the, or the, or the top three that they, they need to start worrying about right now and, and anticipating taking action on? I suppose the first thing is they need to understand whether or not their data set is replicable. And if so, how easy is it to replicate to the point where are they defining their, you know, the reliability, the sustainability of their advantage on the ability to you know, maintain access to, you know, a very granular data set. For instance, if you have a group of customers, you know those customers well, that's essentially, that's a, a niche data set. That doesn't necessarily mean someone can't come in and talk to them and get that data and be able to appeal them to them in an improved sense. So understanding the future of the survivability of their approach to their data set, I suppose would be something that would be essential. In terms of other recommendations, this is something I need to, need to think about a little bit more. I would definitely say be cautious about you know the introduction of artificial intelligence. It's you know it's not a it's not a magic wand that you can use to do whatever you want. It's going to do only what you define it to do. It's it's very specific. It's and particularly if it's you know if it's operating at a success threshold above like you know ninety five to ninety nine percent in terms of its correct estimations, then it needs to be heavily customized to the overall strategy of the firm. And this leads back to you know. If you're going to implement an AI solution, you better have an overall data management strategy into which the AI solution can effectively fit and grow. Because otherwise, it's kind of you're leaving money on the ground. You're leaving yeah. value on the ground. What I see with a lot of business software vendors that I cross in my network is that the whole essence of the data that they manage or own with their solution has never been a focus point. That's, that's an interesting part in itself. You know, They have always been about the process rather than the data. It's going to be quite a bit of it. This is more just my worries, particularly from some of the research I've been doing the last yeah. week. So I'm kind of disproportionately focused on, on the data side right now. Yeah. But as well, yeah, but it's interesting that you say, make sure that the data set is sustainable competitive advantage for you, where I think a lot of business software vendors are not even thinking it is, rather than that, it, that it's sustainable to stay. And they, that's a mind shift in itself that they have to start thinking and move from, from, from the process thinking that they have always been doing to, to taking the data as a starting point. 
recently wrote a blog on this, this as well, for example, in regards to enterprise research planning vendors mm. that have always been very much about the process and the, and the transactions that they had to capture. If they start to use that volume and that value of that data, they can revolutionize what they've been doing so far, which is bringing to another topic again that many vendors actually are hesitating to do that because they think it's cannibalizing what they've always been doing. So interesting thing that is going to happen going forward Look to, to, to see what, how it evolves. Well, it's always good to take a lesson from Kodak. If you, yeah, exactly. If you avoid that's, the that's, shift uh, by trying not to cannibalize your existing sector by relying on you know, your assumption that your existing advantage is sustainable, yes. you might be shooting yourself in the foot. Although, I mean, there's, there's a variety of reasons why Kodak kind of went to the ground. And although admittedly, they're kind of making a comeback now, which was some very interesting products. They tried to do a blockchain solution for shared, improving the royalties that are returned yeah. to photographers for the use of their pictures. And they also had a, a line of, or I think they still do have a line of desktop 3D printers. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see their pivot. Yeah, you see the same thing with other companies as well that, uh, that have at some point been, yeah, you know, yeah, gone out of business almost. I mean, I recently had a good example of a company called BlackBerry. Mm. Was for huge in the, in the mobiles, the telephony space early 2000. And they're now coming back in, indeed in a completely different way with very innovative, innovative solutions. So thanks for this, Josh. Very oh, interesting to have this discussion and to rip a little bit or, on what it takes for a business software company to remain sustainable and competitive. Where can people go and find out more about you? Say hi to you. LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. That's always a good one to get connected. Perfect. I suppose it's ironic given the conversation, but you know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This was inspiring. There's so much going on these days that is impacting a company's ability to sustain their competitive advantage and obviously the way they can create new ones. So it just tells me that you have to constantly evolve as a business. And the other thing is that you have to stay very curious about what's happening around you to pick up on those unique opportunities that actually are for grabs. So it's interesting times to refine what is remarkable as a company. And that leaves me with a thank you for everybody that's listening today. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Josh Ensminger, Senior Fellow at Ecole de Pont Business School. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology to change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So, with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in, and you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.